This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by University of North Carolina Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Those Who Know, Don't Say, The Nation of Islam, The Black Freedom Movement, and The Carceral State by Garrett Felber. Challenging incarceration and policing was central to the post-war black freedom movement. In this bold new political and intellectual history of the Nation of Islam, Garrett Felber centers the nation in the civil rights era and the making of the modern carceral state. In doing so, he reveals a multifaceted freedom struggle that focused as much on policing in prisons as on school desegregation and voting rights. The book examines efforts to build broad-based grassroots coalitions among liberals, radicals, and nationalists to oppose the carceral state and struggle for local black self-determination. By provocatively documenting the interplay between law enforcement and Muslim communities, Felber decisively shows how state repression and Muslim organizing laid the groundwork for the modern carceral state and the contemporary prison abolition movement which opposes it. Exhaustively researched, the book illuminates new sites and forms of political struggle as Muslims prayed under surveillance in prison yards and used courtroom political theater to put the state on trial. Those who know don't say. The Nation of Islam, the Black Freedom Movement, and the Carceral State by Garrett Felber. Out now from the University of North Carolina Press Justice, Power, and Politics series. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This podcast has a reputation for asking big and deep questions— And I like to think that's what we do. But truth be told, we don't really spend that much time asking the biggest and deepest ones. Those questions about who we humans are and what we ought to make of our time here on Earth. That's what today's interview with philosopher Martin Hagland is all about. In his book, This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom, Hagland argues that a secular commitment to our finite lives that come to a definitive end at our deaths is fundamental to understanding both Marx's critique of capitalism and also to how a democratic socialist society would supplant it. It's a long and complex book, and the interview is also both of those things. It's the first book that's introduced concepts that I've brought up in the therapy. It provokes a lot of important thoughts about how the way in which we conceive of our lives relates to how we approach our political struggle. Anyhow, before we get started, I'm pausing to speak directly to you, our dedicated listeners, and to ask for your support at patreon.com slash the dig. I started this podcast a little over three years ago with no idea how it would turn out and no idea at all that it would become my full-time job. 
This podcast's continued existence is overwhelmingly thanks to you, our listeners, supporting us. And I'm very grateful for that. We also, however, have left-wing books to send you in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month as a thank you. One of those books is my own new book, All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. If you haven't yet, if you're listening to me right now and have always been meaning to donate but just haven't gotten around to it, please take a quick moment to navigate your worldwide web browser to patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. It means a lot to us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Martin Hagland, a professor of comparative literature and humanities at Yale. He is a philosopher who draws on Marx, Hegel, and phenomenology to address fundamental existential, social, and economic conditions. And he's the author of This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. Martin Hagland, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. There is a lot going on in your book. So I want to start by sketching out the basic outlines of it piece by piece, starting with your argument for what you call secular faith and against religious faith. The end of your book, the second half, has a lot of politics in the sense that we normally discuss politics on this show. But the first half is an argument for a sort of metapolitics that fundamentally structures everything. We have one life here on earth. Because of that, our lives have meaning precisely because they are finite. And the things we attach meaning to and strive to achieve require something you call secular faith, which depends on the possibility that those people or commitments that we commit ourselves to might be lost or fail. And so who we are and strive to be is fundamentally a matter of how we decide to use and what we thus do in our finite, in and with our finite time. Why is this what, what James Chappell in a Boston Review review called a meta-ethical principle so important? Why must we understand all questions in this fundamental question of how we spend our finite time? Yeah, that's a great place to start. And it goes right to what I think is the heart of the book, uh, because I want to show from the ground up why spiritual questions can't be separated from material questions and why existential questions cannot be separated from economic questions. And that's also how the two halves of the book are going to come together. But to see that on the most fundamental level, we have to see that, like, you know, why do we have economic questions in the first place, in the broad sense, now not just 
thought about the economy as a separate sphere, but economical question in terms of like, what's valuable, what's worth doing, what do we prioritize, what is important to us? All of those are economic questions in a broad sense, because they have to do with like, again, what we value, how we make the distinction between what is significant and insignificant in our lives. And part of what I want to show in the first half of the uh, book is that Whatever, however those economic questions are answered and those questions of priority and commitment are answered specifically, they require, like, those questions in general could only matter for a being who understands that they have finite time. So there's a question of priority in the first place of, like, any of those specific issues of, like, what's worth doing, what should I prioritize, require a sense that I don't have all the time in the world to do this, that something is at stake with what I do with my time and what I give my attention to has an internal relation to the sense that like there can come a point at any time where where there's no longer time to do this right. There's no longer time to do justice to this. There's no longer time to care for you and love you. And and so that sense of finitude is part of the the the, the pathos that goes into all our care and commitment. Let's talk more about death in particular, the subject of Everyone's morbid fascination. Yes. You write, quote, For the question of how I should leave my life to be intelligible as a question, I have to believe that I will die. And, quote, Only someone who is torn open by time can be moved and affected. Only someone who is finite can sense the miracle of being alive. And lastly, quote, My death is the horizon that renders intelligible all temporal relations of my life. If I actually believed that my life would last forever, I could not make any sense of the distinction between sooner and later in my life. Why does believing that our lives matter require that we understand that those lives will come to a full and definitive end with our our deaths? And and that all that exists as a result from our bodies to our social relationships and political projects, that all of that depends on active maintenance. Is is your argument that our fear of death always directly haunts us? Or is it more that this is a fundamental premise of our being in the world that both directly and indirectly structures everything else? Yes, another excellent question. And uh, in short, my answer is the second, it's the, the fundamental condition. But let me explain how that works, because you zone in very helpfully on, on, on a fundamental issue here. And I think uh, to see the contours of the argument, it's helpful to first think about how this works in relation to more particular projects that you care about. So like part of what I'm trying to show in the book that the determinacy of anything you care about, say like the determinacy of this relationship or running the dig show or Brown University, I'm thinking about Providence examples. <laughs> um, uh, 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 all of those things, for, that, for there to be any distinct thing that like makes the dig show determined as what it is and as an object of Dan Denver's commitment, you have to have a sense of like there are things that you could do or that could happen such that it would fall apart, it would fail. Uh, and that sense that that could happen is that's not, of course, the only reason why you're doing the show. You're doing the show because you want to talk to people and get ideas out and change the world. You know, you're committed to that as an end in itself. That's what's important. But built into that commitment to this as good in itself, as important to do this show, there has to be a sense that, like, 
it could fail to be. It could fall apart. It could cease to be. Uh, oh, I can certainly attest that that's true. That's a constant, you know, is any particular interview not going to work out? Am I going to say something that people think are stupid? Are people suddenly yeah. just going to stop listening to it? Yeah, yeah. And it's important to understand that my argument here is not that this is some neurotic, just <laughs> uh, uh, psychological neurosis around like, oh, I just want to like make sure that I don't fuck up. You allowed me to curse. You said that. Yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but no, no, no. The, but the idea is just that like, because I say there are two movements of secular faith. Like you believe in this as something important in itself, you know, that is meaningful in itself to do. But then like built into that. And if you remove that sense of possibility of failure, it wouldn't even be intelligible that you have to make the show. Because if if there's no way you can fail, even if Dan doesn't get up in the morning and show what's up in the studio, the show makes itself, you know? So it's not even intelligible as an object of care unless you have that sense of its fragility and that it's dependent on practical activity. And we could run that analysis on all the things we care about and, and in, in terms of like how it's understandable and intelligible to us in the first place that we have to do something and that this depends on what we do or what we don't do. Now, how that relates to your life is that they're like all of those things you do, you also understand as things that you're doing with your life. The dig is one of the priorities in Dan's life. And now we ask, you know, how is it intelligible to you even that you have a life that you have to care about and that part of caring about all these other things are ways in which you care about how you're leading your life? Well, for that object of concern, your life to have any determinacy, it too has to be something that could fall apart, has to be maintained, and hence has to have that relation to death. And that also depends on me committing to do something with my time excludes doing something else. Uh, if we're yes. going to continue with me as an yes, example, yes, yes, I used to, I, I, I yeah. used to be a, a more ordinary reporter, not in the set. I was always a fairly openly left wing reporter, but I mean, I did, you know, I reported out stories and wrote and wrote them in the way that most print or online journalists do. And I did a lot of investigative reporting and, you know, these projects mattered to me a lot. And initially, when I started doing this podcast, I kind of did both. And I haven't really reported out a story at this point in quite a long time. So there's a trade-off. Yeah. And I'm aware of that trade-off. Yeah. And that's part of how you you can express in practice what your priorities are, you know? And when we're asking the question, like, who are you? Who is Dan? You know, what we're really asking is like, you know, what what are your priorities uh, in life? You know, this what, is my what, existential identity. What? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we can. Come, yeah, absolutely. Like, what it means to be Dan is like that. Like, I mean, there, there are many things that matter to you, but like both what matters to you and what their order of priority is. And again, that sort of like ca- expression of care and commitment and practical identity is again only possible for a being who is like in the core of his or her being concerned with like. What is worth doing? Is this a waste of my time? How should I cultivate my ability to lead my life? And built into that, there has to be the sense that not only the particular commitment, but the life itself is something that could be lost. So otherwise it couldn't show up as, you know, something that is precious in the first place. You know, your life couldn't show up as precious unless it was something that could be lost, just as no other person in your life could show up as precious if they couldn't be lost, just as the dig show couldn't show up as precious unless we could lose it. And so we have to support it on Patreon and so on. (laughs) Exactly. And, and, And my existential identity is the composite of all of these things that you call practical identities my my identity as the and activity as a as a as the host of of this podcast my my relationship with my family including you know my partner yeah Thea my commitment Thea. to the the yep. Bernie 
Sanders campaign, which I'm aware probably pisses some people off who like my podcast but aren't quite all on board with that, either from because they have some critique from the left, my left, or my right. But it's yep. a priority for me because I think that yep. a lot is riding on it. And so yes. it's kind of figuring out how to balance all of these that things that make me me. And it's I decide these things not just in terms of a decision, but through my actions. Absolutely. And uh, that's wonderful. And let me just add a few things to that, because I think it will be helpful also later when we get into the sort of Marx and politics question. There's actually a tripartite distinction here that's very important. Is that like all the roles that you take on in life are what I call social roles, because they are like, you know, what it means to be even just taking the bus or going to the grocery store. They're like social norms that structure that and that you have to act in relation to just by doing anything. But then uh, so you have even more social roles than you have practical identities. But then your practical identities are those social roles that you actually value as ends in themselves. So there are many social roles that you have to fulfill to do certain things in today's society, but you wouldn't be sad if we changed society such that you didn't have to fulfill that social role. But, you know, being a reporter, being a partner, being a political activist, all of those things are not are social roles that for you have the status of practical identities because they are ends in themselves, that uh, it's meaningful in itself to devote time to them. And then the existential identity, what it means to be Dan, is not this additional practical identity. It is the order of priority and the interrelation between all of those. And you can see this easily by just thinking that, like, the reason it's not another practical identity, it's not like you can wake up in the morning and say like, well, today I'm not going to be a podcast host, I'm not going to be an activist, I'm not going to be a citizen, I'm not going to be part of it. I'm just going to be Dan. <laughs> there is no such thing as just being Dan, because it's not a separate existential identity. But Dan is precisely that ongoing practical relation of sustaining and ordering those, those, those practical commitments. Your book doesn't read like those written by the New Atheists, so I haven't read their books, but I have a sense of how they might read. In part because you don't spend a lot of time arguing why there is no God. Instead, you argue that a higher power and an eternal life for an afterlife, that, they, that these things wouldn't even be desirable in the first place. What do you make of the new atheists, and how does your approach differ? I mean, there's, there's so many differences, I mean, both philosophically and politically, uh, I think on every score. I mean, and I think one thing, one effect, one very unfortunate effect that the new atheists have had is, is this idea, this association of any sort of thinking about secular understanding of the world in terms of like very politically reactionary or conservative uh, movements, you know, but most important, the most important difference for me has to do with exactly what you mentioned, that for me, the my critique of what I call religious ideals, is not, again, as you mentioned, primarily that, oh, there is no afterlife, there is no God, there's no higher power, but rather that, like, what, what, what in many religious traditions have been seen as lower form of existence, that is to say that we are finite material beings, I mean, all the fragility and precarity that we've just been talking about, that, like, that is not in itself the highest good. The most desirable state of being would be to overcome that, would be to be in a state of being where, in order to be, again, you don't have to do all of these things, like do the show, all these things that can fail. You would just exist in a, in a way that didn't require this uh, ongoing activity of care that makes you vulnerable to loss and pain and death. And part of what I want to show is that actually, even though it is difficult and hard to be finite, the risk of pain and loss and death is part of why things matter. And this life, this fragile, socially interdependent, material life is the highest good. And we can come to recognize and honor that through uh, collective emancipation. You critique new atheists because they, quote, seek to debunk religious faith 
with scientific knowledge. Yet, a vast number of religious people do not regard their faith as competing with knowledge, while accepting the freedom of scientific inquiry and democratic pluralism, they hold that religious faith is crucial for the spiritual shape and profound meaning of life. An atheism that does not engage this sense of religion will fail to transform deep-seated notions about faith. My question about this is, do you fall into a similar trap as the new atheists in at least implicitly suggesting that it's a worthwhile political project to go about attempting to convert people? To atheism. And obviously, if it's not clear to listeners, right, you know, already, I don't believe in God. We'll get to your arguments about democratic socialism in a lot of depth shortly, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But what do you see as the politics of atheism qua atheism? Yeah, it's actually quite important in the book that I don't use the term atheism in my own name in the book. Actually, no. it's been described to me in a lot of reviews, but it's very important that because this is another important difference between me and the new atheists, that I'm not trying to divide the world into religious and secular people in, as two different camps. I'm making a distinction between what I'm calling secular faith and religious faith. And I want to show that like, we all have what I'm calling secular faith. And a lot of things that we think require religion is actually better understood in the secular terms that I lay out. So in that sense, it's really a book about what we have in common rather than what about divides us. And also about why, like, insofar as, say, we're committed to the overcoming of capitalism and the achievement of what I'm calling democratic socialism, that is an object of secular faith in the sense that it's something that depends on us and what we do with our lives and how we transform our the social form of our lives. And that's, you know, that struggle you can join whether you identify as religious or secular. And I don't suggest that we start out by uh, disabusing people of their religious faith. I'm just trying to show why, like, we can come to recognize that our life together is the highest good. And that recognition and that faith that our life together is the highest good, it's, what, it's the faith that we actually practice when we devote ourselves to political struggle and to emancipation. You take your argument for spiritual freedom to your reading of Marx and your argument for democratic socialism. And core to that is Marx's argument that socialism is fundamentally about expanding the realm of freedom and maximally reducing the realm of necessity. Explain these two realms and why you believe that understanding them is in turn premised on your argument about recognizing the finitude of our time here on Earth, and thus the question of how we choose to spend the finite time of our lives. So let me just start, and because it's very, very important to gloss how I understand the distinction between the realm of freedom and the realm of necessity. Uh, these terms have a very complex um, philosophical history and also a complex history in, in, in Marx and in Marxist thought. The way I think about them is, is the following, that like, you know, what you're doing is in the realm, that activity is free, is in the realm of freedom when it is an end in itself, when doing it, Again, this is what we talked about before too, that like it's something that and that can be very demanding and difficult things that you're doing and, and that like involve like subjecting yourself to a lot of demands and obligations, but but you're doing it because you recognize it as intrinsically worthwhile. So the time you spend on it you take to be worth spending on it. And hence you don't even you don't want to reduce that time that you have to spend in the realm of freedom, the time you have to be a writer or an activist or a citizen or a partner and all of these things. Whereas the realm of necessity is defined by those activities that are 
means to an end, that are mere means to an end, and that we, in principle, it, they might be necessary to do, to, to, to achieve like an end that is, ex, that is external to the activity. Uh, but those are the, those are the activities that we're committed to reducing the time we have to spend on. So that's, that's sort of the preliminary opening definition of the realm of freedom and realm of necessity. But it's very important that like Marx sometimes talked as though there was something inherently unfree about like the activity of reproducing or material life so that those would those activities would by definition belong to the realm of necessity and i depart from that because it's very important i think for thinking emancipation that a lot of what is socially necessary labor like taking care of each other uh, materially in various ways can themselves be free activities we can do those activities in the realm of freedom in principle that's 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 why the distinction uh, cooking food uh, building houses all of those things can be done in the realm of freedom if the conditions are such that you can affirm the point and the purpose of what you're doing and why you're doing it and how does that in turn rest upon the argument that you make in the first half of your book about the finitude of our time yeah well several things first of all it's very fundamental. Marx started with the very problem of life and life activity. And the f- most fundamental activity of life is to maintain itself. You know, uh, this is what distinguishes a living being. That it's not unlike a stone or a mountain. It's not just there. It has to do something to keep itself alive. And you call this, this natural is, freedom. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Well, it can take two different forms. This is just like any form of life, whether a natural life or a spiritual life, has to maintain itself. And, and, that's, and it's only for... You know, and that means that for all living beings, they take the, in practice their life to be valuable as something that they are committed to sustaining. But we are unique among the animals that we know that we, our life is not just valuable. We can ask ourselves what we ought to value and how we ought to prioritize things. And thereby we have economical questions and economical problems in the broadest sense. And that's also why we can like sacrifice our lives for something that we take to be more important than maintaining our own lives. But again, all of those questions of like what is valuable, what matters, what's significant presupposes definitive and fragility of our ongoing activity of life. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be confronted with those questions. So that's the most fundamental link. You mentioned earlier that there are not sorts of work that inherently belong to either the realm of freedom or to the realm of necessity. But you argue that these two categories are basically constitutive of human reality and cannot be in the latter category, the, the the one of necessity, the, the more disparaged category, can't be eliminated. You write, quote, eliminating socially necessary labor time is not even an intelligible goal for a free life since the question of where to draw the distinction between necessity and freedom must itself remain a living question for anyone who leads a free life. How do you identify these two different realms if they're not given what what makes these categories real and what they are yeah again it's a distinction that we have to make to make sense of ourselves we have to discriminate between what we take to be merely merely means to an end and what ends in themselves because otherwise if, if there wasn't such a distinction at all then like just anything you could conceivably do would be intrinsically meaningful for you, you know? Uh, so then it wouldn't be, even be intelligible that you were confronted with any questions about, like, what to do, because, like, whatever 
came about there wouldn't even be any agencies you have to you have to, you have to make that distinction but an important part of the book is that we can transform in very significant ways the relation between these things and that, that such that like under emancipated conditions even things that on one level kinds of work we have to do that we don't take to be intrinsically meaningful like cleaning out the gutters or something like that. The quality of that would still change if we, if, if I participate, if we share that labor and I've participated in that, I see like, well, this is actually for the, this is, I, I understand why we're doing this. This is meaningful and it has a point because it's, it helps sustain this life that we are, that we are leading together. Then you can change even the, the quality of the work done there by necessity. But you can also be committed to like, well, we might invent technologies such that like living beings don't have to do this type of work. That sort of transformation can go very far. The, the only point I'm trying to make in what you quoted is that like, even with a fully achieved form of social freedom, there still has to be the ongoing question of like, both individually and collectively, has to be an ongoing question for us that like, things that used to count for us as say, ends in themselves can like lose that grip. And part of being a free being is to be able to like, engage that question whether like this is still what I'm committed to doing or whether I should change the practice and for that space of agency and decision and deliberation to even exist that it has to be that distinction between the realm of necessity and the realm of freedom. It seems like you're also making a related argument maybe not exactly in these terms though against the possibility both the desirability and possibility of full automation. You, You write quote readings of Marx that posit a final resolution as the goal of politics either in the form of a totalitarian state or a utopian life that would overcome finitude, betray the most important insights of his work. The goal is not to overcome finitude, but to transform qualitatively our ability to lead free lives. Even in their most ideal state, our lives will have to reckon with the risks of finitude, the risks of losing what we love, and losing our ability to do what we love, since these risks are intrinsic to freedom itself. So there's like the question of full full automation in terms of things like production of of food and and various goods and and services, but then there's you're 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 also kind of expanding this to to argue against the I think very persuasively the the argument that there could ever be full full automation of like things like our love lives. <laughs> yeah. That would be terrible. It'd be terrible. Yeah. And so, so I mean, two different strands here. Both of them are important, and there are two different sort of species of utopianism that can that can creep into. I mean, I don't think has any grounding in Marx, but that have had various historical fates. I mean, one is this idea to start with the uh, one version of the automation point that like thinking that okay. All the stuff that we have to do to reproduce ourselves materially, there's something inherently less free about that, and we should just like automate all of that if we could. But there I say, like, no, actually, that loses the normative question that, like, no, we want what we want in an emancipated form of life is being able to own the question of our priorities, but like, and, and thereby be able to, like, engage the question of, like, well, even if we could, which kinds of activities do we want to automate or and which kinds of activities actually taking care of the elderly or taking care of children cooking various things that where it's actually like part of the meaning and significance of the activity is that it is a living being who cares who does that and that you know having to do that is not a restriction on your freedom this is another very important strand in the book freedom in my, on my account is not freedom from work it's not freedom from obligations it's the freedom to 
commit yourself to activities that like hold you to obligations and demands, you know, and being free is like living up to those demands or challenging them in the name of reasons and so on. So like, it's, it's really like about coming into our own as beings for whom all of these things are, our, are at stake and at issue, not being relieved from having to deal with them and from having to run the risk of failing or having to change. So that's one aspect. And then that translates into the uh, large, larger scale critique of one brand of utop- utopianism, which would think of like socialism or post-capitalism or communism as a state in which we no longer had any economic questions and we no longer had fragility where everything would be just by itself as it ought to be, rather than like, no, it's, it's, it's about freeing up our ability, do justice to our fragility, do justice to our interdependence, do justice to our arguments that we're after. But for that to still be a living practice, it still has to be something that can fall apart and might have to transform itself where how we are maintaining ourselves is always at stake. And being free is being free to engage that question on every level, uh, not to be released from it. You argue that these realms of freedom and necessity are interdependent. I wonder if they're not also interpenetrating and so can't be neatly separated from one another. You write, quote, all activities we regard as essential parts of a practical identity, as essential parts of a vocation with which we identify, belong to the realm of freedom, and the time we devote to them counts as free time. And two such practical identities you cite I think, autobiographically, are, quote, being a philosopher or being a parent, or to take an example from earlier in the interview, a podcaster. But under capitalism, and maybe even after capitalism for different reasons, how can these forms of labor, even if they are driven in part by by passion or or grounded in love, be entirely in the realm of freedom, given that the, the university and the podcast industry and the family and the home all of these things are very much integrated, if not totally integrated, and maybe integrated in a, in, a, in a set of very contradictory ways into the capitalist system that we live under. So the first thing to say is that under capitalism, you certainly have that issue. Uh, and because, I mean, part of the another important feature of the notion of freedom that I'm advancing in the book is that to be free is to be able to see yourself in what you do and in the institutions on which you depend. So so, so the, the laws and institutions and structure that I'm subjecting myself to, I should be able to recognize, even if I didn't invent them or legislate them, but I affirm the principles in light of which they are sustained. And part of why capitalism is alienating is that, like, even when we are doing things that in one sense, we say like this is important and meaningful itself, the very possibility of being engaged in the activity depends on a system of wealth production that is contradictory, that we that is actually alien, that we can't affirm the principles of, and that leads to all sorts of contradictions. And this is part of like uh, how I'm grounding the argument for why like by lights of the very commitment to, 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 to freedom and being able to affirm the relations and institutions on which we depend, we need to, to uh, overcome capitalism. Yeah, well, let's yeah. talk about that more. Uh, you, yeah. There's a lot to talk about in terms of wage labor here. And I guess I'll start before we get to why wage labor is just this fundamental contradiction, maybe we should clarify something you said in your last response in terms of alienation. And you write the wage labor form is alienating and that under socialism, labor would not be alienated because we, quote, we would, quote, 
recognize ourselves in what we do. What is it about the social form of wage labor rather than its concrete activity as just labor that is alienating under capitalism? Yeah, again, important question. And uh, if it's okay, I'll just back up because I also want to say one thing. It's important for the sort of dialectical structure of the account that even though I give an account of why wage labor is alienating and why it has to be overcome, I also want to do justice to the very important argument in Marx that historically speaking, wage labor is also a form of progress previous to other forms of uh, work, because it's the first social form that in principle recognizes that everyone's time is valuable. So unlike a slave who is not recognized, his time is not recognized as any value at all, we have like a sort of formal recognition that like everyone's time is valuable and that you own your life in in, in a specific sense with wage labor. Um, sustained argument that I develop has to do with how that recognition of that that is the time to lead our lives that 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 is that is valuable and gives value to our lives that that recognition can't be sustained under capitalism because what generates value and what makes us measure how much wealth we have socially is not how much time we have to pursue the activities and and types of work that we take to be intrinsically valuable and meaningful, but value is generated through the time we spend on producing and consuming commodities. And and that makes all questions of what is meaningful and what is valuable secondary to the question of what is profitable. And that priority of profit is a priority that we all have to sustain, regardless of what we think about it, just for our practice, because we all depend for our very survival on that there is a generation of, uh, of of profit in the economy. And you write that this is a core contradiction in capitalism because capitalism must affirm that our time belongs to us so that we can then sell it to the owners of the means of production. But then what it ultimately does is systematically expropriates us from us, our control over our time. Yes, and also our control over the ultimate questions of what our lives are for, what our purpose is for, and what the purpose of our economy is. And it's important that that alienation from our ability to own that question doesn't just happen for workers, it happens for everyone. I mean, like, uh, that, I mean, just to put this very concretely, like, when we have global capitalism, like, the, like, we all in practice have to prioritize that there's generational profit because, like, there are only three ways of surviving. Either you have capital that is accumulated profit from wage labor, or you're employed by a corporation so that you get a wage, or you have a job or subsidies from the government, the wealth of which also depends on taxing private profits. So like all of us literally in practice have to prioritize that there are private corporations who generate profit uh, because that sort of wealth all of our lives depend on. Otherwise, we don't have a job or we don't have welfare or we don't have non-profit things but that means that like the fundamental democratic question namely us deliberating and taking ownership of the question of like what's worth doing with our lives how should we honor our obligations to one another how should we live and work together is fundamentally mortgaged to the priority of like you know how can we how can profit be generated for individual corporations you write quote your actual freedom depends on the freedom of others why can't people individually escape this system by getting rich and maximizing their individual realm of freedom? Like, why can't a rich person with enough money to do whatever they want 
be spiritually free and not alienated? Yeah, great question. So it's very important that when I talk about what the proper measure of value is, I don't just say free time. I say, I say what I call socially available free time. And that's supposed to indicate that, like, you know, uh, no one can be free on their own. And, like, you know, and all the, all the things that, like, whatever I want to do and affirm as meaningful in itself is something that is a social activity that depends on the recognition of others. And I can't simply decide on my own that this is a satisfying type of activity because like it depends on how others in such a system i mean several reasons for the for the rich person here to like not be free. first of all part of actually being able to take what you're doing as intrinsically meaningful is seeing that it's also socially meaningful and you know it's a perennial problem of the especially the idle rich that like their activities quickly come to be seen as futile even for themselves and you have like all sorts of mental disorders because of that so also let's j- say hypothetically you create the Bloomberg terminal, you might think you need to run for mayor and then president. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, for example, but we could we could enumerate any number of specific examples of this. But the fundamental point is simply that, like, I can make a claim that hey, this is this is actually what I'm doing here is intrinsically meaningful has has, has purpose in itself. But but that always is something that I have to justify and that I have to be able to see in the world is actually like does justice to the structures on which I depend. And if, if you're in a situation where you systematically have to deny recognition to all of those who sustain you, both that curtails how much you can literally see yourself and affirm yourself in what you do, but it also generates this sense of perpetual insecurity, precisely. This is the classical problem of the master who makes the slave work for him, you know, and he more and more atrophies and he becomes more and more neurotic about the source of his power because he's not doing anything, you know? So part of actually being able to fully actualize your freedom is actively participating one way or another on the sort of like work and labor that that sustains the lives you're the life you're a part of and getting yourself out of that is not a road to freedom it's a road to like sort of like pathological forms of unfreedom stepping back you argue that the core of what is wrong with capitalism is how it produces and recognizes value and that our spiritual freedom requires changing what is valued in society from capitalism's socially necessary labor time to socialism's socially available free time. And your approach to Marx is informed by the work of the the late famed Marx scholar Moishi Postone, and it centers on Marx's critique of value under capitalism. Just to step back to make sure we have our these core things defined well, why does the wage labor system imposed by capitalism value socially necessary labor time? What does that mean? And what would it mean to instead live in a system that had as its measure of value socially available free time? And then to kind of wrap it all together, why is the question of what we value? Why is that the fundamental question for you? The first thing to say, and I push a lot of emphasis on this in the book, that like it's very important to understand that Marx, unlike what he's been read often by both people who are pro and against Marx, he's not saying that like labor is the general and only source of value transhistorically. He's saying that like labor time comes to play a very specific time in the role in the production of wealth under capitalism. That has to do with several things. I mean, first it has to do with that like the reason why am I if I'm a capitalist, why am I even employing someone? You know, how is it possible? That in, principle can profit from employing another human being. Why does that even occur to anyone? Well, because 
human beings, like all other living beings, we just through our activity of maintaining ourselves, we in principle, we create a surplus of time. Uh, that is to say, like, we don't have to spend all our time on just securing our own survival. Imagine if that were the case, that like, if you didn't constantly Dan, if everything you did was just devoted to like making sure that Dan doesn't die, I could never exploit you. Because literally, as soon as I tried to make, get you to do something that wasn't about your own survival, you'd die. You wouldn't be there. So you, so you have to create a surplus of time to even be exploitable. This, so I take this, you know, there's so much talk in Marxism. Everyone knows about surplus value and all these things. But one thing I do in the book is like, well, what's amazing, you have to trace this back to the question of surplus time that belongs to all living beings and that have special status for us as human beings. Because as I said before, unlike other living beings, we have that surplus of time, but unlike them, we can ask ourselves, you know, what should we do with that surplus of time? What should Dan do when, with all that time he has that is not required just to make sure that Dan doesn't die? And, and that's why we can ask these questions of value and so on. And that's why we can have free time to devote ourselves to, to, to things that we take to be intrinsically meaningful. But it's also why we can be exploited because like however much it costs to make sure that workers reproduce themselves and don't die that's less in principle than the value that they can produce for their labor that's why they in general terms there can be any exploitation and any uh, sort of surplus in the economy in the first place limited only by the amount of time that we require that workers require to to reproduce themselves which is a time yeah. which is a time limit Ultimately, absolutely, absolutely, and let's try to walk through this slowly because, like, it, 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 I think it's very important. So, like, and and this is actually when you when you read Capital with this lens and you see like this is what the chapter on the working day is so important. But like, what happens? A very important shift that happens is that like, yeah, so that puts a limit to how much you can exploit workers. But but then also like. In an initial phase, you then try anyways to get them to work as much as possible, push your workers to the maximum. But that will generate resistance and workers organizing and as, as happened and demanding limits to the workday. And once those limits are set, now to increase how much value I get out of my workers, I instead turn to like improving technology. So instead of just having absolute surplus value, I now try to get relative surplus value through like, okay, I can't get you to work now down 15 hours a day. You only work eight hours. But because I supply you with this technology, you can actually produce as much goods as you used to in those 15 hours. And I increase the possibility of making a profit that way. Now, the essential point here is just that like, from the standpoint of me as a capitalist producer, I'm always trying to reduce the amount of labor time that goes into producing any given commodity because the, because the less time it takes, the less I have to pay you for producing that one commodity. So this is like, what I'm from the standpoint of producing, I'm trying to reduce it and that's why I'm developing technologies. Uh, but the contradiction is that the more I do that, the more I like reduce how much time it takes to produce the more we, as a whole, uh, the, f- the, you know, the, the fewer people are required for labor, so hence there are fewer people getting paid and there are fewer consumers. And if people don't buy my commodity, it doesn't matter if I you know, cut down the labor time it took to produce it, because if no one can buy it, I can't turn a profit on it anyways. So you get all of these contradictions and crises of this. I, I trace all of this. But the, the essential point is simply that like, these things that like, could be liberating, that is to say, like, developing technologies that makes just necessary but not intrinsically meaningful work more efficient and faster, that frees up more time in principle, actually doesn't have that effect under capitalism because the only thing that generates value is, is time spent on, 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 producing, and, uh, on producing and buying commodities. So, so Unemployment becomes 
a problem rather than really good news. Absolutely. But it's also absolutely. But it's also important to see that it's not like, oh, we can just then take these technologies developed under capitalism and use them for emancipatory ends, because even the way, even how we design and conceive of technology is already shaped by the profit motive. So like one of the things that capitalism has taught us about ourselves historically is like not only that we can value our time, but that we can free up more time through technological development. But if the purpose of that is to make a profit, then even the types of technologies we develop are going to be distorted by that motive. Whereas like we don't even know what kind of technologies we could develop if we did it for the sake of like not turning a profit, but like to make all features of human activity worthy of human dignity. You know, that would be a very different motivational structure when I build technologies, you know, if that's the purpose why I'm doing it. So it's always very important to Marx to both see like what we learn about ourselves through capitalism, but also why the sort of profit motive and the form of value will, will distort both like our social relations, but also the very way in which we build and conceive of technology. If we can only understand technology in sort of in terms of of what sort of social relations it's embedded in, how concretely does it being embedded within the system of wage labor, how does that concretely distort technological development? Yeah, again, it's because it, it, it dictates everything. Because, I mean, the purpose, it's very important to see that, like, in everything we do, like, the purpose for the sake of which we're doing it shapes the activity. So if the purpose, again, when I'm developing technologies and it tries the problems I'm trying to solve with it, is that like, you know, how can I make this specific type of production more profitable? That will shape in all sorts of ways, both what sort of machines that, that we are putting effort into developing, but also to take a famous example, this is also what explains that like under capitalism, as a producer, I can build in planned obsolescence in my products, right. you know, because that's then you have to buy a new iPhone in a few years if it breaks down. So even though by the lights of technological rationality itself, I'm building something, I'm building it for it to be as good as possible as what it does and to be as durable as possible if we did it for the sake of actual usefulness in leading our lives in light of what matters to us and our priorities, then it would never have occurred to us to build things that will break sooner rather than later. But if I'm trying to turn a profit, if, if that's the way in which we generate wealth, of course it makes sense within that sort of rationality that I'm not committed to building the most durable type of uh, device, but something that can break. And this is also like... Or social media, for example, has been constructed specifically with the goal of maximizing the amount of time regardless of the, the quality of that time, which is sometimes pretty bad quality, that maximizing our time on, on Twitter and Facebook, if, it, if the profit motive wasn't what developed these social media technologies, I can't precisely envision how they would be different, but I imagine they would be. Yeah, no, and it's, I think it's very useful to linger on this because we tend to like naturalize and make the second nature so much but just to think about the fact that like the sort of like social media platforms that we're using are actually like designed to make us spend a certain amount of time just like reading advertisement for stuff that we have no good reason to buy it's so all of these things rather like and the technology that instead was actually about enhancing human interaction and perception and the ability to deliberate and prioritize be uh, extremely different. Uh, and it's very important to keep that in mind so as not to like naturalize the ways in which we understand the relation between ourselves and technology on the model of the form that has taken under, under capitalist modes of production. 
You argue for the importance of imminent critique. This is something that is central to your analysis of the contradiction of wage labor that we've gone over. That's a big part of your your argument, that capitalism both must claim to, to give us ownership of our time so that we can sell it, but as a system, it then negates that value by denying us control over our time and thus the meaning of our lives. So, so you argue for the importance of imminent critique, which you also provide a nice definition of as a, as a critique that, quote, locates the resources for the emancipation within the commitments we already avow. Why is this critique the necessary one? And how does this as a proposition for how capitalism should be critiqued relate to the, and no shade on theory and philosophy, but to the the practical question of how it might be overthrown? Does the logic of imminent critique correspond to a politics of imminent struggle? So on the imminent critique, uh, which is very important for the entire book, but let me first address it in relation to the reading of Marx. And there it's very important that the modern Enlightenment ideals of freedom and equality, I argue, are absolutely crucial for understanding Marx's imminent critique of capitalism, that the historical achievement of us at, on some level being equi- uh, committed to these ideas of equality and freedom, that is the historical condition of possibility for the critique of capitalism that Marx undertakes. And very interestingly, in the Grundrisse, Marx emphasizes this is a remarkable moment in Marx when he says that, like, you know, the, the, the capitalist mode of production is the historical condition of possibility for this generalized idea of freedom and equality that you find in Enlightenment philosophy and liberal philosophy. It's important to understand that even though Marx then is going to argue for an overcoming of capitalism, that it also makes possible these ideals uh, getting a foothold in the first place. And that has two reasons. Even though we know painfully that Historically speaking, and still, there are various forms of slavery persisting under capitalism, and capitalism has benefited from all sorts of slavery. Uh, there is still, with the generalized form of wage labor, the recognition that, like, in principle, these things are unjust because everyone should be free to own the question, to own their life and, and sell their labor power to whomever they want, etc. Uh, just as, like, there's an idea of equality built into capitalist change in the sense of, like, under capitalism, no, in principle, of course, not in practice, but in principle, you know, no bloodline, no caste, no race, no aristocracy, etc. can justify domination. Everyone who pays three shillings, whether they're a queen or someone else, as Marx says, is equal in the relation of exchange. But, and there's also, we should say, like, I mean, with the idea of, of capitalist wage labor, the idea that, like, people, that, that their labor should contribute to the social whole and that is something that you choose as a vocation, these sorts of things. So the point of human critique is just to say that then like these ideals in that, in the name of which we justify much of our social organization showing how those ideals are actually necessarily contradicted and can't be fulfilled and become actual in our social and material practices as long as we depend on capitalism. But it's very important to see that like that's not an external critique in the sense of like from some ahistorical standpoint, you condemn these practices, but you show why they have both subjective and objective contradictions built into themselves that by their own lights call for their overcoming. The, the fact that the, the liberal... That liberal freedom as it exists depends upon so much domination 
and exclusion is an exploitable contradiction precisely because liberalism values freedom. And the freedom of each individual, you know, such that like these, those forms can be like in principle seen as unjust. I mean, one should remember what a relatively recent historical achievement it is to even, even have the formal idea of everyone's freedom and equality. Obviously, we still violate that idea in lots of ways. But, but to even have that as a normative resources to appeal to is something that came about historically and that we have to understand the historical conditions for which and we have to understand the types of, types of struggles that that enables. And this echoes in different ways the, the work of Alex Gorovich and Aziz Rana. Absolutely, absolutely. So like, I think when Alex was on the podcast, I mean, he, he rightly pointed out just how quickly as soon as those ideas of the freedom and equality of each individual were sort of formally circulated in various discourses, how soon they were weaponized and employed by various types of workers' movements. So that's a very striking historical detail that confirms this general argument. And then what about the political, to make a kind of arbitrary distinction in a world where there really is no distinction between ideas and and politics, it's all one integrated thing. But for the sake of of, of discussion, I'm going to make a distinction here between imminent critique as a as a critical activity and and the politics of fighting capitalism and building socialism is there a str- an imminent struggle corollary to imminent critique let me parse a couple of different things in relation to this so the first thing to say is that the strategy in the book methodologically is twofold i'm trying with regard to the question of of capitalism and its overcoming i'm trying to give as rigorous of an account as possible of the fundamental contradictions of capital and how they're related to these questions of time and value and why, even though they can be negotiated in various ways, they can't be overcome or solved through redistribution but require fundamental transformation of how we reproduce our lives and our mode of production. And really, like so like as rigorous of an account as possible as of what's wrong with where we are, we could say. That's one half of it. And the other half is trying to show then like the principles in light, what I call the principles of democratic socialism, in light of which we would have to be organized so as to not be subject to those contradictions, the general and concrete principles of a different form of social life. So that's an account of where we are committed to going if we are committed to freedom and equality. And it's in light of those principles that like, that we can also see what's wrong with where we are. So that's an account of like, what's wrong with where we are and where we're committed to going. And I want to like, that's where I think I make the contributions in the book. That leaves the question of transition, you know, how you get from where we are to where we ought to be. And that question of of transition, I don't address in the book, not because I don't think it's important, but because I think it's so important. And I want to make urgent uh, how we have to address that question and provide more resources for the sort of groundwork for that. But that's not the work I do in the book. But I think that like to orient ourselves in the imminent struggle and understand both the contradictions that all sorts of reforms are going to face, but also like to understand what we are fighting for. One needs the sort of work I'm doing in the book, but how that can be employed for the imminent struggle, I don't address in the book. And that's something I'm thinking a lot about now. But so, so, so there is a necessary relation with, between the two, but I really do the imminent critique in the book uh, so as to open on to uh, a richer and deeper conversation about the imminent struggle, if that makes sense. One example that comes to mind for me is is healthcare politics, where the principle of Obamacare was universal coverage. That was not the reality of Obamacare, but it established the principle 
of universal health care as a basic right. And the struggle very concretely for single payer health care for Medicare for all emerges from that contradiction very, yes, very clearly. Yeah, not, yeah. not that I saw it coming ahead of time, but that is what ended up happening in retrospect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And I think what's helpful with that example, too, is that actually when we look at when any any concrete struggle that is taking place always actually has the form of imminent critique, even if you don't theorize that. So in, there's a very deep sense in which there is no other option, because like, where else would you get the resources for your critique except from within the commitments that we already have within our form of life. Otherwise, it wouldn't be intelligible what you're appealing to when you're saying, this is wrong, this is unjust, this is not how we ought to do these things. Obviously, the resource for that have to, in some sense, be imminent to how we're already trying to make sense and justify of our lives. There, there is no other standpoint in a way. And then, but being cognizant of that, I think, will attune much more to deploying those resources. So that's one, that's one way in which having grasped the sort of logic of imminent critique will make it easier to identify the resources for imminent critique within a given struggle. Maybe that's a way of formulating it. It just occurred to me this, this could also sort of imminent critique as imminent struggle could also be applied to immigration politics where Trump's openly, nakedly racist justification for an intensification of a war on immigrants that was already being perpetrated by his liberal and establishment conservative predecessors directly made it a challenge to liberals' stated ideals of human rights for all, which is now forcing liberals to repudiate their own prior policies like building hundreds of miles of border fencing and militarizing the border and doing mass deportations, they can no longer embrace that the way that they used to because the brazenness of Trump's monstrous racism creates this kind of this uncanny thing that happens, this contradiction, where suddenly the contradiction between the professed liberal values and the practices are exposed, which then creates an opportunity for left-wing immigrant rights groups to try to realign policy around these stated liberal universal norms. And, but I think one should also see that, like, so that's one way it can play out. But I think also on the sort of, like, furthest reach of the struggle here, that sort of contradiction can and should also be used to expose the sort of fundamental contradictions of, of capitalism and, and, and its tension with these liberal ideals. Because even though we can uh, can and should modify and change immigration policy in all sorts of ways. Like the, 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 the basic necessity for borders in a way that is violent and that will have practical contradictory effects on our, on our claim to everyone's dignity ultimately has to do with like the necessity of borders for like guarding the surplus of a state. And it's linked to all of these capitalist mode of production questions that, you know, and we can't separate our ability to respect the dignity of each and every one from the ways in which we are actually producing wealth in the first place. You know, I mean, the example I often give is with, I mean, I grew up in Sweden at the sort of last hurrah of the welfare state, but even at its height in the 50s and 60s, like something like, you know, the wealth we were redistributing in relatively equitable ways was still like, I mean, could only be produced because there you have like immiserated parts, other parts of the world where our corporations can make profit and all of these things, you know, so like all of these issues are linked. And once you start pulling at one thread, you can get to all of the systematic questions too. And we shouldn't choose between like, yes, the urgency of all sorts of reforms, uh, we don't have to choose between that sort of commitment to reform and the uh, uh, deeper 
uh, an ultimate horizon of, of a revolutionary transformation. We have to like work with both of those perspectives. I'm glad you brought that up because, as you likely know, this is the an issue uh, in which you met some criticism from from two reviewers, uh, Michael McCarthy and Jacobin, and Daniel Steinmetz Jenkins and Daniel Zamora in dissent. Because you write, quote, advocates of forms of redistributive justice never question the measure and production of value under capitalism, but focus only on the distribution of wealth across society. And they argue that you're too dismissive of redistributive reforms that fall short of fully replacing capitalism with democratic socialism. McCarthy writes, quote, there, their meaning reforms, relation to spiritual freedom is far more intimate than he lets on carrying with them the power to enhance people's capacities, albeit in marginal ways that might be reversed. And then Steinmetz, Jenkins, and Zamora write, quote, Welfare can't be understood as simply a cost for capitalism. It is also a source of wealth. The welfare state is not simply a tool to control the working class, but neither does it pose an existential threat for capitalism. It is a set of institutions that has profoundly altered class relations, and the reproduction of capitalism itself. So you already alluded to this a bit in your in your last answer, but explain your account of redistributionist measures under capitalism and what you make of these critiques, that your emphasis on a total break with capitalist value underplays the degree to which our society can, I guess, I guess the way they, your critics might phrase it, be substantively revalued short of a full revaluation and total rupture. I should say, in regard to both of those criticisms, I make emphatically clear in the book, even though they like that, that like it's not a matter of choice. And I'm not, and I say several junctures, like I'm not dismissing the concrete benefits that various forms of redistribution can have, you know, so I'm not against that. But what I'm calling attention to and emphasizing that we shouldn't conflate various forms of redistributing wealth with. Uh, that, that those can't f- solve the fundamental problems, you know. And if you if you limit yourself to a redistributive paradigm, a reformist paradigm, you know, you will ask questions about how capital wealth is distributed and allocated, but you will not ask the questions about its fundamental relations of production, you know, and how that requires inequality, uh, exploitation, commodification, global injustice, all of these things. And I'll try to show that systematically. So if we are committed to overcoming those things, we ultimately have to be committed to not just redistribution, but revaluation. But that's not in any way to deny the various positive effects those sorts of reforms can have. But even to understand, as they say in the book, the sort of challenges and contradictions that those reforms themselves are going to run into, we have to understand this more fundamental dynamic of the contradiction in the production of value that I'm that I'm analyzing in the book. And so, so like, in either of those two cases, I don't think that anything they say in those things contradicts something I say in the book, but instead they allied reckoning with the more fundamental issues that I'm identifying and that both have to do with like the sorts of as I mentioned the sorts of relations and exploitation and inequality that production wealth requires but also that the very way in which we are socially formed under capitalism prevents us from being you know it's not that it's the price of something we used to be better for poor but the price is our ability to lead collectively uh a form of life that we could achieve. It's, it's it's interesting because whenever you like, it's such a long-standing antinomy on the left to like reform or revolution, and like, and I really tried very hard in the book to not dismiss 
reforms and redistribution as some people do, but also be very emphatic about why ultimately it's insufficient and why by our own lights, if we are critical capitalism, it requires what I'm calling revaluation and a revolutionary transformation of our lives. But then like people, instead of taking that on, tend to read me back into that forced choice, you know, uh, and I, but, I, but the book actually tries to do justice to, to, to both of those sides. So just to clarify from your perspective, is the good that reforms can do and what can't they do? Yeah, so they can make things less terrible than they are. There's obviously a big practical difference between if you have Medicare for all or not in this country. It's going to make a big difference in lots of people's lives. And I would never underplay how important that is. But we can do justice to that and and underline that without closing our eyes to the more fundamental problems that stem from how we are organized and relate to one another and produce uh, our goods and our value what yeah so so like to go back to our to our to our to our uh, just to make this concrete we can go back to our discussion about technology you know so like obviously various forms of reforms can make the influence of uh, corporate interests over our technology and our social media less but it can take us to a point where like the very way in which we devote our ability to develop technologies and think about what would be valuable and meaningful and useful in building platforms to interact, that we can own that question as a question of like, that is guided by how will this benefit us? How will this allow us to flourish and grow rather than like, how will this allow us to make a profit? Because as long as this goes back also to this thing that like in practice, under capitalism, regardless of what we think and what our explicit values are, we all in practice, as I said, have to value and prioritize the production of profit and the profit motive because literally none of us can make a living without it. Because whether we are surviving through having capital, through having a wage or having welfare, all of those things depend on the production of capital wealth that is redistributed. And part of what I'm trying to show in the book is that the very production of that wealth is pernicious Uh, for our ability to socially relate, to build technologies, to ask the question individually and collectively of what is meaningful, what is valuable. All of those things are subordinated and compromised as long as we're under that mode of production. So, So that sort of transformation of how we are formed as individuals and how we are formed collectively, we can't take ownership of that social formation and habituation in the way that we in principle can without overcoming that. And maybe the technology thing is helpful, that, that the distinction between, again, tampering down the, very, the most pernicious effects of the corporate profit interest in our development of our technologies, but versus being able to actually, for the first time in history, really explore how we can develop ourselves and our technology in light of what we work out as conducive to our flourishing rather than to the making of profit or domination of one another through other motives. It seems to me that their critique isn't so much that you don't recognize that reforms can make people's lives better, but it seems like they're arguing that they can also fundamentally remake, if not entirely transform the system. And precisely, I think, where where they're disagreeing with you is that that these reforms can actually remake what is valued, even if not a total way. And I think the dissent critique if i if i read it correctly is that while capitalism is always the 
the enemy, maybe that's my gloss, it's not always the same enemy. And that what they're saying is that your analysis of what's the same about capitalism across time underplays what's distinctive about, say, neoliberalism. It's precisely in terms of this question of, of value. Put it this way. I mean, an important argument in the book is that for us to have actual democracy, we like, you know, the purpose of our economy itself must be subject to our democratic deliberation and interaction, etc. And like the what is the same, despite all the historical difference in capitalism, is that the purpose, the ultimate purpose of production in our economy is the generation of profit, you know, and I'm trying to trace both the material and the spiritual consequences that that has. So it's so all the historical transformation of different ways of negotiating the problems that emerge from that, but they can't democratize the fundamental questions of economy. Uh, so that's one thing. And the other thing is that, like, if you don't have that structural dynamic analysis of capitalism that I develop out of Marx, it's also very hard to explain why social democratic states became unsustainable and why neoliberalism got a foothold, etc. You know, so we can like we can trace all sorts of historical transformations here, but to actually understand what renders all of these things intelligible as capitalism. That's another thing I'm trying to be very clear on in the book, because there's a lot of talk these days about that there's something called capitalism that is a problem and that we need something called socialism, whatever, but it's great unclarity about what one means. And I try to like show as rigorously as I can that like there's only one definition of capitalism, and capitalism is a form of historical life where the production of self-social wealth depends upon wage labor. And all the issues that Marx traces with comes out of that. And then like, and if you don't want to think, think through the, or those fundamental issues that will be negotiated differently historically, you have to have that in view. But then also that also gives you the task of like, okay, how would we have to change and how would our relations have to change for us to overcome that? And I'm trying to spell out how demanding and radical that is in terms of the principles of what I'm calling democratic socialism. And, and, and again, so, and that work... Yeah, and I felt that like uh, neither the dissent nor the McCarthy piece like really took on that level of analysis in the book. And and again, this is not at all to deny that like on derivative levels it makes there's a big difference between social democracy and neoliberalism. But to understand what makes both of them forms of capitalism and why both of them are inimical to actualizing our social freedom, one needs the sort of analysis that I'm providing in the book. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley by Rob Larson. For fans of corporate fairy tales, there are no shortage of official histories that celebrate the innovative genius of Steve Jobs. Liberal commentators who fall over themselves to laud Bill Gates's selfless philanthropy. Or politicians who tell us to listen to Mark Zuckerberg for advice on how to protect our democracy from foreign influence. 
In this highly unauthorized account of the Big Five's origins, Rob Larson sets the record straight. Those readers unwilling to smile and nod, as every day we become more dependent on our phones and apps to do our chores, our jobs, and our socializing, can take heart as Larson provides us with maps to all the shallow graves, skeleton-filled closets, and invective-laced emails that big tech left behind on its ascent to power. Larson's withering analysis will help readers crack the code of the economic dynamics that allowed these companies to become near monopolies very early on. And, with a little bit of luck, his calls for digital socialism might just inspire a viral movement for online revolution. Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley, by Rob Larson. Out now from Haymarket Books. I want to talk to your return to your argument yeah. and get into some more depth about how we as humans might navigate the realm of freedom if we were truly free to do so. What, in other words, free time really means. You write, quote, under democratic socialism, there is no inherent demand that you have to choose only one vocation for your whole life. Since you are not required to work for your survival, you have the spiritual freedom to ask yourself if you ought to sustain a given practical identity, or if you ought to transform or abandon the practice. The question of what you should do with your life, the question of your existential identity, is recognized as an irreducible question, which must be allowed to remain explicitly at issue in any vital spiritual life. And this is... I think probably intentionally echoing Marx's famous passage in the German ideology, and maybe you even cite it, I don't recall, quote, For as soon as the distribution of labor comes into being, each man has a particular exclusive sphere of activity, which is forced upon him and from which he cannot escape. He is a hunter, a fisherman, a herdsman, or a critic, and must remain so if he does not want to lose his means of livelihood. While in communist society, where nobody has one exclusive sphere of activity, but each can become accomplished in any branch he wishes, society regulates the general production, and thus makes it possible for me to do one thing today and another tomorrow, to hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, criticize after dinner, just as I have a mind without ever becoming hunter, fisherman, herdsman, or critic. There's a lot there, but my, my question is, how, how is it that our time, the way it's currently organized for and against us, is domination because it determines who we, it's a system of power determining who we are rather than ourselves freely developing who we are, and what would it look like for us if we could and did truly determine how we spent our own time, and thus who we are. Yeah, so the first thing to notice here, and I love the way you juxtapose that passage from this life with the passage from the German ideology, it's very helpful. And that passage from German ideology was much in my mind as, as, I, was, as, as, as I was writing the book, even though I actually don't explicitly uh, quote it. So the first thing to notice is, of course, that Marx thinks of it, the idea that like you would be fully identified by your station or your 
labor in that way is a form of unfreedom. And that's also why we can understand why Marx has no nostalgia for previous modes of production and previous forms of life prior to capitalism, because then, like, you know, you were identified with your social social role, social position, like your sister, your wife, you have all of these things that like, whereas like one thing that starts to come into view with something like wage labor is that precisely because, yeah, you can, at least in principle, move somewhere else and like, because you, you own your labor power and you can do something. So, so that the question of like whether what you're doing is a mere social role or a practical identity starts coming into view for us more clearly. It's always been there as an issue. Already in Antigone, this is the question that like she, she thinks she's defined by the social roles of a sister and a citizen, but then they come into conflict and she can't make sense of this because she can't think the way in which she's not reducible to any of these roles because part of what she is is also like the question of whether she ought to be a sister and she ought to be a citizen and how she ought to be those things, you know. That question has always been there for us. That's why we are, I say, like spiritually free from the beginning in a minimal sense because there's always a question for us what I ought to do, who I ought to be. But there are different historical conditions that allow us to own that question in different ways. And in relative terms, then, wage labor is progress, but the reason it doesn't allow us to own that question the way that we could is because your labor is still coerced and motivated by that you have to make a living, as it were, rather than like that you're working on the basis of your commitments rather than uh, on the basis of your uh, material needs. And this is another aspect of the book that some people have thought sounds implausible that like well how could we ever imagine that we would be uh, working if if we didn't have to work because for our survival as it were you know but I think that is really conflates two different things that like there's a difference between causal compulsion and rational compulsion that is to say like just because we would not have to work in order to survive doesn't mean that we wouldn't have obligations and that we wouldn't have commitments uh, and all these things. So it's very important for me that like free time is not reducible to leisure time in the sense of like having hobbies or doing whatever, like, and on a whim, just like, oh, now I'm going to stop being a doctor, being a teacher, all these things. No, if I'm committed to these things, they come with obligations and part of exercising my freedom is holding myself to those obligations you know getting up in the morning and teaching my class or attending to my patients as a doctor is not a constraint on my freedom it is the exercise of my freedom because freedom is binding myself to a law to obligations that I identified with and that I I hold myself to but freedom also has to involve the ability to like continually engage the question of whether this is what I ought to be doing and that means that it has to be the possibility of giving it up. Maybe I keep my whole life reaffirming my answer to that question. Yes, no, I'm really committed to being a doctor and this is the major priority of what I'm doing. But if I'm just compelled to do the work that I'm doing because otherwise I will die, I can't, you know, that that's, that comp- that compromises my my free relation to it. But my free relation to it is not doesn't mean that like, oh, I can just on a whim give it up because... Uh, freedom is that capacity to precisely bind yourself to commit yourself so we have to keep both of those things in play so the idea would be that we are like organized in such a way that we can actually recognize our dependence on others and thereby recognize the obligations we have both to our own development but also to the social good and that like 
society's organized in such a way that like how do we reduce the amount of time that people have to spend on things that are mere means to an end and how do we transform our relation to social and necessary labor well one thing is that like as i mentioned earlier lots of social necessary labor can be done freely like in the sense that like yeah now i'm committed to being a doctor and a teacher or uh, taking care of the elderly because this is one of the ways in which i do something that is fulfilling and that expresses my commitments but then also like that labor uh, that no one wants to do for its own sake on one level that is qualitatively transformed because like we are committed to two things in the way we organize our society we're committed both to like reducing that time by thinking about like technological non-living ways of taking care of it but in the meantime to sharing it in various ways and that that changes the quality of it because if i'm doing like a pointless uh, if i'm doing a task that i don't particularly want to do and i do that for the sake of like a corporation or something like that, where it's just like i you know even if i tried i couldn't affirm the purpose and the point of of this activity because it's actually like not devoted to something that that makes sense in relation to our life like for example data entry at some massive company where you don't even understand what the data points that you're entering are and what even to what purpose they'll be put. Yeah, yeah. Or even like, you know, selling health insurance. And I know I have to like screw up the information here to get these people to buy this thing, even though I know that rationally we could do this much better, you know? So I'm like alienated, you know, I can't see fully fully affirm and see myself in what I'm doing. Whereas in a form of life where like, okay, yeah, part of the day I have to get up and participate in this activity. But like, I actually see like, I can see in light of our current historical and technological situation that this is work that needs to be done and that we share in various ways. And it itself, in its own way, is an expression of my commitment to an identification with, with the kind of life that we're trying to sustain. So then that activity also becomes free in its own way in the sense that it's something that I can affirm the necessity of. So like, it's very important that we don't have an opposition between freedom and necessity here. That like the point is that we are able to make our necessary activities, the activities that are necessary for our life, freely willed activities. And then we can also recognize that like a lot of things that we tend to think of as just like less necessary activities, like creating art and music, they are also socially necessary. So, so on the highest level, we'll be able to think the relation between freedom and necessity in, in a very new way too. Along these lines, I liked your discussion a lot of Adorno's analysis of hobbies. You write, quote, free time is thus reduced to leisure time. Rather than being the form in which we engage the question of who we are and what matters to us, our free time is commodified for the sake of profit and reduced to a, quoting Adorno here, selection of hobbies that matches the supply offered by the leisure industry. In contrast, Adorno holds that freedom requires that we overcome the opposition between work and free time. Explain this division between work and free time and also how we might overcome it, given that you argue that we will never be able to eliminate another divide, which is similar but different or, you know, proximate but different, which is the divide between labor in the realm of necessity and labor in the realm of freedom. Yeah. So the first thing has to do with the relation between work time and leisure time and the way that that is takes on a uh, takes on an alienated form under capitalism and i should say when i talk about alienated form it's not in relation as in traditional forms of marxism that 
that we once possessed this, then we've lost it. It's rather like in relation to how we could be. But in any case, the important point is that like one effect of capitalist wage slavery, one effect of that we have a form of life where we tend to think of the work we have to do as compelled not by our free commitments, but by our uh, need not to die or to make a living, as we say, you know, is that we tend to think about the sort of like labor we do as a necessary evil, you know, and we tend to think of freedom as this time we have like when we get home from work or when we don't have to do anything, when we kick back, all of these things. And uh, where we do th- and where we do things like use various substances and input various media to media to attempt to anesthetize ourselves to, you know, prepare for another workday. To prepare for another workday or like, you know, reduce our existential despair <laughs> or like, you know, all of these things. So like, but there's so many things baked into this because like then the reason why that time is unfree in an important way is both because it's just negatively defined in relation to the labor, but also because, as you write into me, as I point out in the book, that our free time in that sense is also being colonized uh, and commodified because what we are made to do in that free time is to like engage in various activities and buy various things that like are for profit and that are like you know manipulated in various ways. Yeah, so, so that's a, that's a striking example also of how like our free time is also always given in some sort of social form. It's also always it's never just individually available; it's socially available, and it can be socially available in a very distorting form. But the idea of what I'm calling like socially available free time and increasing our socially available free time, both individually and collectively, doesn't necessarily mean having more leisure time or vacation time. It means that like more and more of our time is time which is either devoted to activities and commitments and professions that we value for their own sake and that we see the point and the purpose of, or to engaging the very question of what we value, how we ought to transform those things. You know, all of those things would be... And the, and the more we build that sort of time, which doesn't just happen through having empty quantities of time, it has to do with like having educational and other forms of institutions, which are sustained and designed in view of like allowing people to take ownership of those questions as social beings who always have to justify what they're doing to others you know so like then even like when we're going to the beach etc we could recognize that that's part of a reason we share that like you know there ought to be relaxation as well you know and we can see how that relates to our form of life as a whole but we never longer have the strict division we are actually able to take responsibility in relation to all of these aspects of our lives and 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 uh, yeah this just made me made me think one place you might depart from Marx is that where he says that you can do all of these various things, hunting, fishing, rearing cattle, criticizing, without ever becoming a hunter, fisherman, herdsman, or critic. Your gloss on this would be that with truly free time, someone would become a hunter, a fisherman, a herdsman, and a critic. Yes, so all, everything depends on what becoming that means, you know, and 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 obviously, so so like one could read it in different ways. I mean, the the generous way of reading Marx is just thinking that that, that would be like this sort of like single minded. It wouldn't solely define you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But so so but but he's underdeveloped on this point at the very least, and and part of what I want to bring into view is precisely that like. 
and this is why the category of existential identity is so important that we touched about before, because it's precisely because like who you are is like your Antigone or your Dan Denver or your Martin or your Martin. Uh, 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 like, uh, and what it means to be someone is not precisely to never be exclusively defined by just being a hunter, a fisher, but being the one for whom the relation between these commitments is at issue and being the one who owns and is answerable and responsible for engaging in that question and justifying to others how you're leading your life and making sense of it and so on. And that like, or for the sake of as a society would be to allow people to grow into that sort of freedom and responsibility, not freedom as freedom from justifications, obligations, reasons, but the freedom to own up to and engage in the process of asking for and giving reasons for what we do and why we do it. Because that's another important aspect of the argument that like, the degree to which I'm free is the degree to which I can own the reasons for why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because unlike for other animals, for us, it's not just a question of what we do, but why we do it. We can always ask, like, why the hell am I doing this? Our freedom is both our ability to ask that question, but also, like, we are actually free when we're able to avow and affirm and justify and sustain the reasons why we're doing what I'm doing. You know, Because like, if you were stuck in some horrible telemarketing job, et cetera, part of your alienation would be that like, I'm asking, Dan, why are you doing this? You're like, well, I have to make a living and I couldn't find a job. And like, that's very different than you doing the dig. And like, why are you doing this? Well, because all of these reasons that you can affirm and sustain and that actually are expressive of your freedom. Uh, and that's why freedom is like a committed activity rather than this like just being free from any demands. It's a freedom to own up to and avow and affirm the demands you're trying to live up to, also with the risk of failing. But even in failing, that's an expression of like, yeah, you got the chance to try. And that's the best anyone could ever ask for. You write, quote, for us to become truly social individuals in Marx's sense, we have to be the subjects of production planning and directing it for our purposes rather than being subjected to production for the sake of capital. And along those lines, you note, quote, the Soviet legislation under Stalin literally changed the formulation of Marx's core principle from each according to his ability to each according to his needs to the following from each according to his ability to each according to his labor. This is a powerful I didn't know that. And that's a powerful critique of how Stalinism and and other anti-democratic distortions of socialism are just that because fundamentally socialism must be about democracy, fundamentally economic democracy control over our time and thus who we are. But do you see a fundamental tension between socialism as the individual claiming control over their time and socialism as the collective democratic control over time and production, which necessarily involves heterogeneous desires and, and commitments? So here, here one has to make some fine-grained distinctions that like it would be again a mistaken idea of freedom to think that like if I am overruled in a certain question by a democratic decision, the procedures of which and principle of which I can affirm, you know, me subjecting myself to that decision is actually not an expression of my own freedom. It is an expression of my freedom. Because, so, so, so that's why, like, you, you know, I mean, part of understanding uh, myself as a social, what Marx calls a social individual, is precisely understanding my relations of dependence. And it's a case of domination on freedom if the way in which I'm subjected to collective is 
arbitrary, capricious, unjust, you know, it, it, perpetuated in a way that either is obscure to me or the principle of which are like directly contradictory and inimical, etc. But if it is, I am actually not dominated if I'm, if in certain things I am like committed to doing these things democratically and I expressed one form of the collective will in that but but it was overruled then like subjecting myself to that is not a limitation of my freedom it's another expression of my freedom so that's that's one aspect well well, well, yeah one quick follow-up on that which is that you argue I think very much correctly that socialism can't mean the end of history the end of finitude or the end of the risk of failure or the end of of debates and disagreements about what is what's good and what's bad. So, and here's where I might disagree with you, I'm not sure, won't won't there always as a result of just that be a degree of conflict that will ultimately lead to some forms of soft and hard coercion? We're obviously all on the same board about building a society that radically reduces domination, but isn't it, what, wouldn't we have to step out of history to envision a society where domination and coercion are entirely abolished? Yes. Okay. So very important question. And let's be fine-grained on this point too. So we have to be clear on what we mean by coercion uh, also. like So one, one important aspect of what you quoted there, the difference between the Stalinist version and the Marxist version of like from each according to a need and then like whether it's like need or labor is that like I think ultimately, as I mentioned before, we have to work and labor not on the basis of being coerced into do so because otherwise we're not going to survive, but it has been on the basis of our commitment. So that sort of coercion, I don't think, is in principle necessary and could be overcome without us overcoming history or finitude or something like that. Things would still be, because we would still, it would still be a matter of like obligations and it would be a matter of debates. And in fact, like now arguments could be truly ideological because they wouldn't be masking class interests and so on. It would really be about like debating what matters. And as you said, what is good and bad and how we ought to do things. So, this could just be a semantic question, but we have to be uh, like, yes, lots of things. We can have a debate and I can be unhappy about the outcome. You know, I really thought that we should like build this dam in Sahara this way, but the Dan Venver line turned out to be the more rational one in the assessment of the people involved. And like, I have to submit myself to that. Uh, is that a case of domination and coercion? Again, I think that like, I can then be committed to saying like, well, I'm still going to hold my line and I'm going to keep making this argument and I'm going to come up with a better plan and we're going to have all of these arguments and it can be intense and we can be hurt in the process, you know. We can even be, yeah, so it can be all sorts of negative emotions involved, but I think that's very different than the sort of structural domination and coercion that comes from, yeah, the way it has been in all forms of social life hitherto in history and still is that like yeah where there's a sort of structural domination and coercion on the basic of, of just like keeping ourselves alive and the way in which that inhibits our ability to develop what i'm calling our spiritual freedom and our ability to take responsibility for our lives you know i mean that in previous forms of life i mean most of the time this has done this sort of coercion has been explicit slavery now globally it's mostly wage labor and so on but so so i think it depends on what we mean i think we can overcome structural domination and coercion but that shouldn't be conflated with like oh now we live in this blissful state when no one disagrees and when no one is ever hurt or disappointed or think that various things are bullshit and should be changed and so on no it's about that ability to actually disagree and acknowledge our hurt and our joy and so that, that's supposed to come into its own 
I agree that we can move much more radically and precisely the, towards the sort of society that you describe. But even in the most utopian circumstance, even after overcoming capitalism as the mode of production, it seems to me there would be political conflict in a sense that involves violence and coercion, hopefully far less. Like if someone, we could think of a more ordinary crime like like murder that would require the state or some sort of organized social form to exercise coer- some sort of coercion. We don't have to get in details of what sort of coercion that would be, but some form of coercion in response. Or we could think of a conflict where society determines that that a scarce resource will be used in some sort of way and some subgroup within it insists on using it in a different way, contrary to what has been democratically decided. And if the majority opinion is not, not respected, that could lead not just to, to bad feelings, but, but violent actions. And I, I just, mm-hmm. I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't see them disappearing, but I, I do believe we can, that, that, that our politics is all about radically diminishing them as much as possible. I just, I, I don't I, I don't know that the revaluation you argue for mm-hmm. will lead to them disappearing. Yeah, let's let's really linger on this point because I think it's very important. I'm really glad you're raising this issue. And let's try to like stay on this point for a minute because I think it's important. A um, couple of things. So very importantly, of course, on my account, the possibility of violence and disruption, et cetera, is necessary that has to do with the that's another aspect of the finitude and fragility and so on and however emancipated our form of life is it's always something that we have to sustain and that we can fail to sustain this is taking us back to the secular faith dynamic we were talking about before you know so it's never going to be achieved once and for all and it's always going to bear within itself the the possibility of these sorts of but i think it's important to think of these things as not just diminishing but qualitatively transforming the way in which we are socially formed such that like the kinds of coercive enforcement that we're thinking about now as just necessary and endemic to human nature can be very significantly qualitatively transformed. I mean, Marx says someone, somewhere that like, you know, in mass form of life, like, you know, the, the criminal would pass his own judgment on himself, as it were. Like, I mean, if you like... And so I think we can certainly, in principle, even though it would, the other thing to say is that all these transformations, it's not something that's going to happen automatically. It's something that, like, this is specifying, you know, what we are working towards in building sort of like transformative institutions that gradually will sort of like shape us differently. But so, but what we're talking about is like where that could lead us. And I think that, like, I don't think we need the state as something that has monopoly on coercive violence. Because I think that we can take a different type of responsibility for our actions. But, but well, let me pause you there because it seems like then your definition of democratic socialism is what Marx might have called communism. Yes, correctly interpreted. Yeah, and I say this at two points in the book, actually. I'm trying to elaborate what that would be, you know? So, like, yeah. So, so like, I mean, and the way Marx puts that transition from what he calls socialism to communism is, is that, like, the state is subordinated society rather than the other way around. So, I guess that brings up brings up the question of like why utopias are good to think with. Are they an actually is what you're sketching out something that is fully realizable? This thing that is that is similar to what Marx described as as communism, which I think he described as something sort of on the horizon beyond socialism and or is it a blueprint? that even if it cannot be fundamentally, like inherently cannot be fully realized is a blueprint from which we can 
can work toward building the thing. So first of all, yeah, what I'm calling democratic socialism is by my lights the proper elaboration of what Marx called communism. So, but it's very important that we understand that as something that is achievable as a form of life. So, so that that's very important because I don't think that it's 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 not either blueprint or this ideal that we can always just infinitely approach but never get to. But it's very important that like yes, we can achieve that sort of social freedom, but built into that social freedom is perfectibility and corruptibility. But not because we haven't achieved the form of life we were striving for, but because that form of life must continually, to be, to be free in the, in the relevant sense, be perfectible and corruptible. But that's not a perfectibility that, that is like aiming for some perfection that we never get at, you know? It's just that like we can fully own our inter- interdependence and our imperfection. That would really be what it's about. And the principles of democratic socialism that I spell out have to do with like how it has to be organized in order to to like fully negotiate and own up to that. Do you oppose people like me who you're not going to convince about full anything being full and complete, uh, still taking inspiration yeah, from oh, your book oh, as a blueprint? Uh, uh, okay, yeah. No, no, but, 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 but I, I appreciate that you put it this way because like, look, I'm pres- we have this. Is, it's great that you put it that way. So let me try to drill down on this point that. In one sense, of course, my whole argument is that things can't be full and complete because then they would be dead. But we, but what I'm trying to show, though, is a logic where like, the impossibility of fullness and completion is not a lack. The reason we can't be full and complete is because not because we haven't arrived at a goal, but because it's intrinsically the dynamic of life that is an activity. So like, if you think about like a living being, the reason why we never complete as living beings is not because we haven't arrived at our final fulfillment. It is because what it means to be a living being is to be continually engaged in the activity of sustaining that life with the risk of failure. But the completion of fulfillment would actually be death. It would be the end of life. So that's not even what we're striving for. That's what I'm trying to show. So I'm all on board of like, it's not about like some fullness or completion that that would settle everything. But I think we can achieve a form of life where, like, we are actually socially free, but therefore also free to fail and free to continually engage in that in that in that process. Yeah, I mean, in a different register, just to give a concrete example of how this would be about not solving once and for all the problems of our interaction, but being able to like really engage that process more fully. I wanted to take an example in a quite different register, but that's hopefully helpful. Is the question of coordination. So, like, obviously, because it's always something that people think we need markets for to 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 coordinate the relation between supply and de- demand and distribution of various goods that we produce. Uh, and one important point I make in the book is that, like, I do this imminent critique of Hayek on this because Hayek thought that, like, he was he wrote this essay on the price mechanism. He said, like, well, you know, the problem for all economies, you know, has to do with how to communicate the relation between supply and demand. And this is why, like, top-down planning, socialism doesn't work, etc. And uh, and I, I certainly agree that top-down planning and socialism is not what we should go for. What's interesting about that example in Hayek, and I dwell at this length in the book, is that actually, as long as we have a capitalist mode of production, we actually can't have a rational price mechanism. Because Hayek writes when he's trying to justify this is an example of imminent critique. When he's trying to justify the price mechanism, he says that like, oh, this is amazing, this is a marvel, because through the pro- as a producer for the price, I communicate immediately how much the supply is, you know, and then as a buyer, I communicate 
what the demand is, then we can do, we can coordinate this without any central coordination, it just happens through the price mechanism. But of course, as a capitalist producer, I'm not trying to communicate how much I can actually produce, etc. I'm trying to make a profit, so I'm manipulating supply and demand in all sorts of ways. And we also... And so Hayek, Hayek elides what sort of value price is measuring. Exactly, exactly. And the only way, and this is a concrete example I gave in the book, the only way for like, so the point of some, what I'm calling democratic socialism is that like, it's only under those conditions of production and consumption that we can actually have a rational price mechanism because we're neither manipulating the demand and the need for various forms of like advertising all sorts of stuff and we're not and as a producer i have no incentive to manipulate the supply to make a profit but we can actually communicate and we could imagine various technologies for this about like in real time like how much we can produce how much we need and we could communicate all of this you know with a price mechanism that has nothing to do with capitalist value or a market relations of selling and buying for profit but actually of like real circulation of goods where we can communicate supply and demand you know so that, and of course there would be all sorts of questions of coordination built into that and it would be you know and we could that could be perfect that's perfectable in various ways but you see that's a way in which like Yes, it's, it's one of our economic problems as social beings is that we have to coordinate supply and demand. That's true. That's a real problem. But that problem doesn't have to take the form it does under the capitalist mode of production. And by Hayek's own lights, if, the only way for it to function the way he thinks it already functions would be by us overcoming the capitalist form of value and production. Well, the market socialist listening to this podcast would want me to ask you... Yes. Why are markets inherently implicated in all of the problems you've identified in the social form of wage labor under capitalism? Great question. Because as long as, uh, because this is the classic idea of the corporate commonwealth or something like that, like as long as those cooperatives are competing, then the the, the profit motive is built into it, you know? If we're competing, at, that is to say, in the form of like buying and selling, because the only way that makes sense is that like, you know, it's going to be profitable for the cooperative to buy or sell, you know? We could imagine like rational competition in the sense of like, you know, showing that like, oh, we can actually do this best. So you guys should think about doing something else. That would be a rational form of competition, but that wouldn't be a market of buying and selling. So it depends on what one means by the market. The crucial question for me is that like, it's the buying and selling for profit that prevents the relations of production and distribution from being rational. And that's what we have to overcome. Uh, Because as long as we do that, we're going to have the relation to labor time that I trace in the book and that where like it becomes more about exploiting for profit labor time rather than uh, making time socially free. The book is centered on the question of what we as a society value But it isn't a core question for now engaging the fight over who is included in the in the we at present. We have reactionary anti-immigrant politics that are organized around all of these different sorts of finitude that are not the temporal finitude that you're dealing with. We have economic and resource finitude, the finitude of of national belonging in the demos, which is fundamentally the we question of, of racial belonging, the literal spatial finitude of our country as it exists between borders, all at a time, as you point out, when the most, quote, the most fundamental example of finitude in our historical moment is the prospect that the earth itself will be destroyed. If the earth will be destroyed, all life forms that matter to us would be extinguished. No one would live on and no aspect of our lives would be remembered. And so dealing with that problem seems to require 
an almost, if not entirely, infinite we, or at least different different forms of nested we's. I'm not sure. But I guess my question is, in, in, in what sense does making our finite lives just, as you argue in your book, require making our political community less finite? The first thing to say is that all of those more particular tribal finitudes that, that you that you outlined, you know, I mean, first thing I want to say is that they are also only intelligible in light of the fundamental problems of finitude that I'm tracing in the book and where that sort of like, and, and it's an essential possibility of the care of a finite life that it can take these pernicious and, and protectivist forms, etc. But on the we question, it's again like, you know, when Marx talked about species being, he didn't mean like Feuerbach that it was some human essence that exists historically. It was, it's our capacity to that we are the species. We, we, we are concerned with, you know, not just who we are as individuals, but who we are, you know. What are we doing? Who are we, you know? Who have we been? Are we ever going to get to the moon? Are we destroying the planet, you know? We ha- it's, it's a category of intelligibility for us that that actually is of concern to us. And that is an emancipatory resource and a resource for imminent critique in the sense of like that if we want to make a case for why these sorts of like particularistic weeds that you're talking about are pernicious and so on like we we have to like bring into focus and bring into view and and develop this our ability to think in terms of the we that way and nothing makes that clearer than 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 the climate crisis issue you know because the question is always there like why can't we do something about this you know why are we destroying all these things why don't we change these things and but that's a very abstract question if we don't see that like under the capitalist mode of production, we actually don't have, even though we are doing this and doing this to ourselves, since we can't own the fundamental questions of our economy, you know, that compromises our ability to, like, really ask these questions of our priorities. So, like, in the long run, part of the conditional possibility of having a sustainable relation to the environment is precisely that we will be able to assess and take into account rationally what the real costs of production are. This goes back to the Hayek point, that we can actually communicate supply and demand, and we can calculate costs in a rational way. That will also include environmental costs, all these things that we can communicate through a rational price mechanism, where we could actually, in light of what what, what matters, take into account what the costs and gains are. But even though, of course, reforms, Green New Deal, all these things... I'm all behind it. We can be behind that and still recognize long term to really for us, for there to be a we that could take global responsibility for our global conditions of survival. We would have to have a form of economy where we actually can rationally communicate cost and we can calculate costs rationally rather than for the sake of profit. And we can own the fundamental questions of the economy so that we can actually not just in name and avowedly say that, oh, the most important thing is like our life on this planet together, but we can actually put that into practice. And one of the things I'm trying to show in the book, and it's very painful to reckon with this, is that like that we can't actually constitute that sort of we in the way that we need to as long as we have the capitalist mode of production. And like, I'm not saying this lightly or because I think it's easy to solve. And I was one of the painful things about writing the book, the book is to really like face up to that if we're going to be serious about analyzing what would be required for us to be able to take responsibility for ourselves as fragile creatures who depend on an environment for which we but but who can take responsibility in a way that other animals that we know of can't do, that requires uh, that we can become a we in this global sense, and that's not just a matter of like 
what we say but or what we do and how we relate to each other materially and it's those very hard and difficult questions that I'm trying to bring into view at the end of the book well Martin Hagelin thank you very very much thank you so much Dan this was a real privilege for me Martin Hagland is a professor of comparative literature and humanities at Yale and the author of This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, my own existence is social activity, and therefore that which I make of myself, I make of myself for society and with the awareness of myself as a social being. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews, according to what we've been told, help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends, family members, strangers, whoever about the show, why you like it, that you like it, etc. Please make propaganda for us. And last but not least, do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. Hold up. 